Welcome to the Truth to Power show on Radio Free Brooklyn. I'm your host, VJR Nathan, and with us today is uh, co-host Bruce Whitaker. Welcome, Bruce. Hello, welcome, everyone. Hello, VJ. We're doing a special episode on the Friday evening slot, Potluck Dinner, and with us today is, uh, and you can hear in the background, I think, a little bit of the celebration since we're recording from home. We're not in studio, so we're... Uh, we may be hearing a little bit of the drumming and, and cheering for the first responders. Um, so with us today is Daniel Jose Gustambide. Um, he is a visiting uh, assistant professor. Sorry, he just got to become an assistant professor from visiting uh, to Department of Psychology and the New School for Social Research and also a practicing psychologist. Uh, welcome, Daniel. Hey, thank you for having me. Thank you so much for being here. So uh, we're going to be talking a little bit about your book, A People's History of Psychoanalysis. And uh, I'll read a little bit from the back cover just to give people a chance to understand its scope and the um, topics it's covering. So um, in A People's History of Psychoanalysis, from Freud to liberation psychology, uh, the author reviews the often forgotten history of social justice and psychoanalysis starting with the work of Sigmund Freud and the first generation of left-leaning psychoanalysis, uh, psychoanalysts. Uh, the author traces a series of interrelated psychoanalytic ideas and social justice movements that cultivated in the work of you know, many of the thinkers and, and psychologists we'll be talking about. He asks the question, um, as inequality widens in all sectors of contemporary society, we must ask if psychoanalysis is too wide and too well to do to be relevant to social, economic, and racial justice struggles. Are its ideas and practices too alien for people of color? Um, can it help us understand why systems of oppression are too so are so stable, and how oppression can become internalized? And I think it's very interesting to ask that question. Uh, as I was reading over the book, I was thinking about how in today's discourse there's a stark divide between the self-actualization crowd and the social justice crowd. Many times you see responses to questions about social justice saying that, oh, I'm a lover, I love everyone, and you know all this kind of thing. And whether or not that's relevant, or is it relevant? I don't know, maybe it is. Um, but um, questioning the structures upon which we understand what it means to be a lover, what it means to love, and uh, in what way can be authentic about that and not be kind of, um, glib or dismissive about social justice concerns mm -hmm. by saying, I'm a lover, I love everyone. So why don't we start the conversation off there? Sure, I think, um, I think it's interesting because there are ways that self-actualization discourse actually come up within social justice rhetoric as well. Yeah, yeah, um, there are a lot of people who cite that, uh, that famous line from Audre Lorde, um, which is something to the effect of, uh, self-care is not self-indulgent. It's an act of political warfare. Exactly, um, exactly, yeah. On the one hand, there's something that feels very true to that statement, especially when people of color, LGBT people, marginalized folks engage in acts to take care of themselves, mm -hmm. to make sure that they are safe, to take care of their medical as well as mental and emotional well-being when there are so many forces that can assail our minds and our very bodies. So there's something genuine and real there. But what sometimes happens is when you have this, um, you know, when you have Audre Lorde's quote um, on Instagram overplayed over somebody's 
cheesecake or bread that they baked <laughs> in the oven. Yeah. And then great, I baked some bread. This is a political act. I you know, took a piss. It's a political act. Yeah. Um, suddenly it can reduce the question of politics itself to an individual performance. And when it's taken to that extreme, it can really lose its radical tenor. Interesting, because it's like, I think also that internalization element of it perhaps is a play there. Yeah. You know, uh, if you could expand a little bit on, um, like, I'm not quite understanding that analogy, like we have personal care, but then also, can you expand a little bit on how that becomes a, a show you're saying? Uh, that's how I heard you say, or at least, I don't know. Like, um, Yeah, depending on the situation, it can certainly become a performance, become a show. Um, probably more accurate analysis is that it can disconnect personal suffering from societal suffering and societal and political dynamics. Mm -hmm. So if I say, for example, well, all I'm really interested in is self-care, making sure that I'm okay, taking care of myself, et cetera, but I'm not really concerned about my common woman and man, about my neighbor, then there's a way that that can become uh, itself self-indulgent. Uh, self-indulgent for, for giving the redundancy. Um, if I'm looking to get myself ahead, particularly within a capitalist neoliberal economy, then getting ahead and well-being, et cetera, only becomes about me. Mm. And it could become about me making profit. And sometimes me making profit does come at the expense of other people's well-being, because that's the way in which the system functions. Now, unfortunately, when we take that orientation, there's a way in which there's a boomerang effect to that, which I you know, can talk a little bit more at length, where when we get so, let's say, narcissistic or self-focused on our own, let's say, development, uh, socially, career-wise, that not only has an immediate impact on our own intimate relationships, but it can potentially put us in a place where we start to feel more isolated, where we can start to feel more disconnected from other people. To give a very concrete example, if you can imagine someone who has not narcissism in the healthy sense, we all want to have some healthy sense of narcissism and self-respect, yeah. but if it goes to such an extent that I'm only focused on myself, that's likely going to have an effect on other people. It's going to uh, push them away from me, going to make myself more distant, and ultimately then I'm going to suffer because I'll have no meaningful connections in my own life. If you zoom out, um, from the interpersonal to the social political, there are ways in which, um, you know, you mentioned the, the issue of internalization. There are ways in which we internalize certain messages from our society about not just how our society should run, but how we should run ourselves in it. So the message is, if you didn't, if you don't have a good job, if you don't have a good wage, if you're not accepted in your community, well, that's a you problem then you need to just pull yourself up by your bootstraps, mm. try to get ahead in your neighbor while everyone's out for themselves. Yeah. And that has an immediately corrosive effect, not just on interpersonal relationships, but on communal health and well-being, which leads people to mistrust each other, not feel that they can depend on one another in relationship and in community, and ultimately leads to an atmosphere of fear. Right, or we come to fear our neighbor, both in the literal sense as well as in the symbolic sense of fearing an other upon whom we project our anxieties in terms of race, gender, class, and sexuality. Mm. And 
to what extent do you believe or do you see self-actualization as like a rich man's game? You know, like, uh, is it something that the, we have the luxury of self-actualizing, whereas people, communities, uh, marginalized communities, communities, socioeconomic difficulties are too busy with their struggle to survive to really self-actualize? And to what extent is that true or not true? I don't know. I'm not saying anything about this truth value. I just think that's the predominant narrative. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah no, there's kind of, uh, there's a double-sided lie. Yeah in that rhetoric on the one hand you know you can go on youtube and see all these videos of um you know ultra rich millennials about this is how i start my day and try to actualize myself so i can live a connected life and they'll show slow motion shots of them looking through their you know lines of air jordans or whatever right that's a super commercialized view of what it means to be self-actualized, yeah, which right. basically means great if you have multiple yachts and a massive house, then you're suddenly self-actualized, <laughs> right? Yeah. And then, then as you're saying, then it does become kind of a rich man's game. Yeah. Um, but the lie embedded in that is the idea that not just self-actualization, but psychological mindedness or well-being is something that's for the well-to-do. The lie inherent in that is this idea that, especially among people who are poor or who are a member of marginalized communities, that they're so busy being poor or so busy being traumatized or so busy living in conditions of oppression that they don't have time to have an unconscious or they don't have time to have a psyche. Um, one of my uh, um, mentors and peers, uh, the Argentinian psychoanalyst Patricia Garovici, is fond of saying that, no, nobody's too poor to have an unconscious. Even the poor can afford to have an unconscious. <laughs> that we all have uh, a rich inner life that our context can either obfuscate, right, hide the nature of our own internal being, or bring out. We, we don't know what somebody, in fact, looks like emotionally, psychologically, et cetera, unless they're in an environment that invites them to actually explore and talk about who it is that they are. It's for a similar reason that psychotherapy is also sometimes seen as, oh, well, this is kind of a middle upper class, bourgeois, you know, uh, white Western product, um, as if people of color and other marginalized people don't have stories to tell and lives of their own to author in relation I, to talking to another. Yeah, I, I've just uh, spent some time in the last few years working with some uh, major regional theaters who have been reaching out to communities in new ways and bringing things like theater labs and theater training into women's shelters or senior centers. And we always think, like you say, that, oh, they're too poor to, be, to have time for theater. They're too poor to, to be expressing something, but it often works the other way they kept finding the people in these centers would gravitate to theater, attain a certain yeah. sense of self-confidence and discovery about themselves. And then the more materialistic or the lower level Meslavian priorities could suddenly you know, take place for them. So that notion of self-actualization uh, in some ways, I think that the more problems you have in life, the more you need these levels of self-actualization mm -hmm. mm -hmm. because your challenges are so much bigger and, and often so much farther beyond your control, you know, that, that you have to really have a mindset to address them. Yeah. Uh, the idea that certain people, whether it's certain uh, ethnic minority communities, um, 
folks who are poor, et cetera, that, that they're too busy to, you know, it's quite the opposite. Um, different forms of oppression narrow our ability to reflect, to be able to have that kind of psychological well-being and self-actualization. But when provided any kind of space, whether it's an artistic space, whether it's a psychological space or a therapeutic one, or even just a communal space where people can give testimony and tell stories, that then opens space and provides room for people to be able to reflect and tell the, their stories. And in the act of reflection, be able to humanize themselves as well as other people in, in their community. Um, I'm glad you brought up the example of theater. One of the more surprising stories um, that I came across in writing this book was uh, the case of uh, Alberto Guerrero Ramos, who was a, a black Brazilian sociologist who got very into not just psychoanalysis, but also drama therapy. And he put together the black experimental theater movement in Brazil. And uh, I found this very lovely story of him guiding a group of folks in developing essentially a play using their own personal stories. And it was only in writing out um, the play using their own personal histories that they got the space to suddenly become aware of how much their life was textured by the intersection of race and class. Um, there was this one young woman who was an actress who in acting out this particular incident from her childhood suddenly remembered, oh, wait a minute, when we were out in the countryside, my family, and this, this was an Afro-Brazilian family, you know, my family was seen as, you know, well-to-do people who had standing in our village. And then when we moved into the big city, suddenly for the first time I realized I was black. And there came an awareness of the different ways that blackness was denigrated and put down in Brazilian society. But she had never made that connection between her own internal feeling of being alienated and isolated and the dynamics of race. But when she was provided with this therapeutic space, using uh, theater as a tool, she was able to narrativize it. And as I talk about in the book, they were able to mentalize about it politically. Mm -hmm. Yeah, what's coming out for me also is about, um, I saw a meme or a, a quote from the writer Colin Whitehead, the author of Underground Railroad, I believe he wrote that. And he wrote hmm. more recently in Nickel Boys. Um, he was talking about how his take on slavery was very different or contrasting it to Gone with the Wind. How Gone with the hmm. Wind was, you know, in his words, I believe, like an innocent story of self-actualization with the backdrop of slavery as like a, you know, is ignoring or dismissing the cruelty and the systemic um, abuse that slavery, she was a slaver and she's like, oh, they're burning down my house and the reader's supposed to be like, oh no, it's her house, you know, but, you know, she's a slaver, you know? <laughs> So that's what he was saying, and this is, I was like really affected by that because obviously we're all suckered in by that story, and we all love you know Scarlett O'Hara and her journey. But mm -hmm. um, to what extent can we be authentic to our experience while still being authentic to the experience of the other? You know, not making it the other, but yeah. rather you know, to what extent is it possible in Hollywood or or um, you know 
any medium in which stories are told to really raise the awareness. You know, in today's discourse, people say, oh, I'm sick of them, you know, bringing in multiculturalism, you know, and in a way that seems phony, according to these people. But, um, you know, I just want to talk a little bit about that, about how the otherism yeah. and how we can tell our stories without, you know, otherizing. Yeah, that, that's an you know interesting example, the case of Gone with the Wind, because yeah. it, it, it clearly props up certain characters in the narrative that you're meant to identify with, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And certain characters who hang in the background who are essentially treated as props mm -hmm. or seen as an other that's not seen as fully human in the narrative. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a major function, not just of most media, but also ideology, that it, it, it creates um, objects for us to identify and see ourselves in and through that identification then marginalize and exclude other characters in the story and I don't just mean uh, stories in terms of movies and films and narratives but also how we represent our world politically um, with the specific question of this tension between well what about creating other characters that represent our world that different people can identify with um, side by side with this, oh, are you just cramming multiculturalism <laughs> down our throats or, you know, you're being focused too much on diversity or whatever. Um, I think that's another tension that also has two different lies inside of it that I think it's important to tease apart. Um, I'll give Black Panther as an example, right? I mean, you, there, there's like a little Black Panther sitting on my corner over here, actually, because I love the movie. I thought it was a really wonderful film. I love the fantasy of like a world that resisted colonialism and that was untouched by it right throughout its history. Um, and there were certainly a lot of elements in that movie that invited, um, you know, predominantly black audiences and audiences of color to identify with these characters and see themselves represented on the screen. And, you know, there's nothing negative that I can say about that. It is important to see yourselves and different stories and narratives being represented. At the same time, I couldn't help but notice that um, uh, essentially T'Challa, the Black Panther, represented a certain kind of politics within that story, which wanted the world to stay the same. Whereas um, Killmonger, the character that was played by Michael B. Jordan, represented that suggested actually the world needs to change dramatically. At the end of that story, um, obviously, Killmonger is the bad guy, you know, he's taken out, and T'Challa emerges victorious. At the end of that movie, you know, spoiler alert, I guess, for, people, for the two people who haven't seen Black Panther. But at the end of that story, you know, Killmonger wanted a revolution. Um, of course, he failed in the story. Uh, T'Challa, uh, at the end of the story, opens, <laughs> opens like, a, like a, a cultural center or a resource center in Oakland. And I'm like, wait a minute. According to the story, the villain almost comes out as a hero who wanted to change this whole system. The hero opens up a center while the underlying forces of economic and racial inequality are left kind of untouched. So what happens when media provides us with, on the one hand, an object to identify with, which many of us for community of communities of color, you know, myself in Puerto Rican, you know, if you just show me a movie with like a Puerto Rican superhero, um, like La Urinqueña or whomever, you know, kicking ass, of course I would eat all that up. I'm hungry for that. But when that's used as a vehicle 
to sell me an ideology that says nothing's going to change. Everything's going to remain the same. Then it should slow us down and think about, you know, not just what opportunities for identification are there, but why do we create certain models at certain points in media? Right. Because imagine if you did the same film over, but it was Killmonger who won out at the end of the movie and basically armed all the oppressed people of the world to resist um, capitalism, racism, etc. That would be a very different movie. And that would have a very different message than the movie that we got. Now, that's, um, you know, kind of a more left critique of the issue of identity politics and diversity and what have you. And it feels important to keep in, in mind two things, that diversity is extremely important and we do need more diversity, but that has to be, has to be joined at the hip with questions of social justice. I'm going to set that to the side for a moment. You do have people who, uh, you know, who have hypochondria the moment they see a person of color on screen <laughs> and they're like, oh, no, you're changing my cartoon or whatever. Um, and of course, I see that in less sympathetic terms. That's, you know, dumb and likely betrays a certain kind of uh, racism, sexism, misogyny, and so forth. Um, I can say, just to give a you know, personal story, when I was growing up in Puerto Rico, um, we had all these different cartoons that were translated um, in Mexico into Spanish. So when I grew up, I, I watched uh, Batman, the animated series. And Batman was Batman. But Bruce Wayne was Bruno Diaz. Mm -hmm. So growing up with Bruno Diaz, I was convinced like, oh, Batman is clearly Puerto Rican. He's Bruno Diaz. Uh -huh. He's saving people in Gotham, which is clearly somewhere around San Juan because that's the metropolitan area. And then when I came stateside and I was told, you know, oh, Batman, Bruce Wayne, I was like, who the fuck is Bruce Wayne? Where's Bruno Diaz? <laughs> so obviously the opportunity to take a character and kind of baptize them in my experience, you know, had an impact on my own psychology and the way that I see the world. So there is obviously something important about being able to see ourselves represented in these stories. Um, so long as we also have a bit of distance and criticism about the stories that they're trying to tell us to begin with. I would to go back to that person having uh, apoplexy, watching a person of color come onto their TV commercial or something, because I think the, the challenge many of us face is this issue of polarization. And um, those of us who are on board with multiculturalism, we're really on board with it, we love it. Um, we're, we're kind of dancing around this, these issues of appropriation and so forth and trying to navigate that and looking to our friends to help out. Um, but for the person who is totally threatened by it, um, you know, there's a famous photograph of a white woman screaming at a child, at a, a child of color in a supermarket, mm. I think it was in Wisconsin. And this very, uh, really respected, uh, we were there, VJ was at that Buddhist uh, poetry festival. This poet said, uh, look, the, I, all I saw in that woman's face was fear. And you mentioned that earlier, Daniel. Yeah. How, how, do, how do we who are trying to bring progress address the fear and bridge the divide in this country, which is just because of all of the uh, top level communication, if you will, is just being pushed further and further, is being weaponized in such a, an effective yeah. and vicious way. 
But how can we, as we, if we try, if we think we're, if we have something to say, we want to help something, how can we do that? Just, just the lowball questions over here in this park, man. <laughs> so, uh, Daniel, could you fix racism, <laughs> capitalism in 500 words or less? Uh, look, let me, let me. I, I think Step it comes back. into the potential of this yeah. kind of psychology you're talking about. That yes. this is this is where the metal hits the pedal, if you will. Yeah, you need you need firstly to have you need to have a real analysis to not say diagnosis of what the underlying problems are. How you understand the problem then dictates the approach that you take to address it. So let me give you. Um, I'm gonna go in a couple of waves to address your question. First, I'm gonna give you um, the point of view of the book. Then I'm gonna give you a point of view that is uh, a more traditional um, racial justice perspective on how to address that question. And then I'm gonna come back around to, given the perspective of the book, here's what I recommend given existing research. Make sense? Yeah. Great. Cool. So here, here is um, one of the core questions and thesis of the book. And it actually starts with Freud. Freud asks, how is it that a society that is the result of the many having control over the production and distribution of wealth that is built on the back of the many who make that wealth possible by their labor, but in which they have too small a share, how does, the, how does such a system continue working? Why don't the people who are oppressed and exploited by the system, why don't they rise up? Freud concludes, yes, of course, there's an obvious hostility and resentment that can occur between folks who are exploited and oppressed towards their masters among the powerful. But among their masters, they also see their ideals, something that they wish that they can become someday. In order to create that identification, people need to be provided with an other upon whom they can discharge their fear, their hatred, that they can essentially displace the source of their pain, not from being those above who are creating this unequal system, but that the source of their pain is an other who is seen as a source of danger, the source of attack and the source of threat. And that it's this weird triangular dynamic, which Freud talked about uh, primarily in terms of uh, sort of upper class white Aryan rulers relating to uh, predominantly German Aryan society, treating the Jew and the black as this other. So the other is necessary in order to keep the system of inequality intact. This is what um, both older psychoanalysts and even some contemporary researchers call race as a class weapon that you need that kind of fear in order to keep the machine in place. Now, what does this naturally do? It means that you need a climate of fear in order to mobilize people's actions. This fear obviously destroys any meaningful sense of communication, any potential sense of trust between communities. We can talk about um, people of color and white people, men, cis men and cis women, LGBT people and straight people, you need this ambiance of fear and lack of trust in order for things to work. Simply put, it's a way of thinking about divide and conquer on a larger scale. Now, many people, 
I think understand within racial justice movements have a particular narrative. That narrative is that uh, you know racism is something that's intractable in America. It's part of the soul of everyday white people. Everyday white people are the main perpetrators of racism. Therefore, if we wanna create change in America, individual white people need to have a almost conversion experience where they acknowledge their privilege, they acknowledge their perpetration of whiteness and white supremacy, and then come around to create a new society and a new set of uh, social organization along with people of color. And there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot that's sensible in that message. And there's a lot that's sensible in that diagnosis given recent events, given our society, given our history. A lot of contemporary research suggests that when you approach white people with this message, it leads to a mental and psychological shutdown. Uh, uh, Robin DiAngelo talks about this in terms of white fragility, that when white people are framed as the er villain of the story, they either become aggressive and fight back, they get defensive, or they shut down, they don't listen, they push it all away. Now, many of us who've grown up in racial justice activism tend to take to this story because it makes a lot of sense. Um, and we push this story, right, as a way of doing racial justice work. And when we look at research work on the efficacy of this approach, we often notice that it cannot be very effective at changing people's minds. Here's another story, uh, a story that builds on the underlying diagnosis that I described, described earlier. If racism is not only a problem of individual white people who have bad beliefs, but if racism is a tool to help divide people, obviously hurting predominantly people of color, but also to divide people so that we can all get screwed in the society and in the system, then we need some message intervention and mechanism that can help bring us together in order to enact social change. Um, a contemporary uh, representative of this perspective would be Ian Hani Lopez, who's a professor of law at UC Berkeley, uh, who you know published a lot of his research in this area in a recent book called uh, Merge Left, um, which is focuses on this idea of fusing race and class. The idea, just to uh, spell out very quickly, it is a message that says, we are all put up against each other along lines of race. And where we're put up against each other, the wealthy, powerful, and well-to-do exploit us. And they're able to get away with literal murder, tax cuts for the rich, draining the social safety net, and getting us all fighting over crumbs while they profit from our suffering. But if we can come together, we can create a society that works for all of us, white, black, and brown. Part of what Ian discovered in his research is that this message, because it acknowledges the role of race, but invites white people into allyship with people of color. In other words, it's shifted from individual white people are the enemy to individual white people are complicit, but they can join with us to create change. That story becomes not only more convincing to everyday white people, but it, it's actually more convincing for people of color over above a traditional racial justice message. And this, lo and behold, dovetails with a lot of very old psychoanalytic ideas 
that we need to find a way of building empathy with one another, connecting and building relationship with each other in order to develop movements for change. It's only paradoxically by inviting people into relationship that then people can do the hard work of checking their privilege, exploring the ways that they're complicit in the system, et cetera. So in other words, sometimes we lead with, you have to check your privilege, you have to do these things. When we have to bring people into the movement, into the story, in a sense so they can feel psychologically safe enough to then be vulnerable and actually explore how these things affect not only their everyday lives, but also those of us who come from ethnic minority, marginalized communities. It's interesting because I think when you actually can have an honest conversation, there is enormous common ground between the fearful white person and the fearful person of color. Um, you know, they actually are, are structurally, at least they're, they're natural allies um, who have chosen to be allowed to be pitted against each other in a manipulative way. But there's, there's lots of common ground to work from is if we follow an approach like you say, but um, it's so hard to find opportunities for that kind of dialogue. We're so, our divisions are physical, uh, there are channels of information now are completely different. Uh, we're all in our bubbles and I, I listen to people who think like me and we just keep echoing each other and we don't develop even the tools to have a conversation with uh, someone who we probably agree with 80% of the way and there's that one 20% area of of change, which may be uh, a deeply personal trait, an ingrained point of view, that we just don't have an opportunity to have these kinds of conversations. It's, you know, the issue of mistrust is very real. And much of that mistrust is also adaptive. How can we have a conversation about, you know, we have issues in common that we can connect with, et cetera, when you just turn on the news and you see yet another case of a young African-American man being shot to death by white civilians, right? So it becomes super important to both hold together the ways in which actually we don't have common ground and we exist in very different worlds and dialectically to put that together with the reason these different worlds exist is precisely to keep us from talking to each other and realizing that there are some common issues we can band together around. Um, but it involves really holding um, other people's realities in mind simultaneously. I want to bring up some of the images you, some little gems that you brought up in the pre-interview questions, specifically, um, and I think this relates to what you've just been saying, specifically about how, um, let me just get the quote, is about how the thread is like the monster in the movie is inside the house. You know, um, we can start with that and then uh, tell us a little bit about how, let me just get the, um, yeah, basically it's like the thread is inside the house and that both the oppressor and the oppressed are dehumanized by this process. You know, how that connects. Yeah. Um, whether we're talking about racism, or even the ways we talk about social justice sometimes, the enemy is always seen as outside. Yeah. And oftentimes that's because they are. Yeah. <laughs> There's an enemy at the gate. <laughs> but also, right, when you're thinking about being a person of color in a you know, predominantly um, white supremacist society, 
But sometimes when we focus too much on the external, we lose sight of the fact that actually that enemy has gotten inside our hearts and souls Mm. in ways that we sometimes don't even notice that we come to internalize, not just the perspective of the oppressor, but also a desire to be like them. That if we can just have more money or if we just have the right clothes, if we listen to the right music, et cetera, that that will make us normal, that that will make us human, that that will make us worthy. In thinking about that idea, we have to um, put together some things that go all the way back to uh, Paulo Freire, but certainly Franz Fanon uh, was a brilliant um, Afro-Caribbean psychiatrist, fought in the Algerian revolution, did some of the most brilliant work, uh, both clinically and in terms of theory building on colonialism, psychoanalysis, and social justice. And he noticed the ways in which when you have a situation of inequality, it kind of drives everybody crazy, but for different reasons. Let me give you um, an analogy. If we think about gender, for example, particularly in terms of cis heterosexual men and women, this, there's this traditional narrative that's like men are from Mars, women are from Venus, they're in constant conflict, right? Then you have another perspective that I think, you know, rightly recognizes. You know, women are oppressed in different ways, lower wages, less access to resources, ongoing debates over women's bodies, etc. Then you have this other discourse that comes up that says, wait, though, you know, men, you know, have high rates of anxiety, depression, substance use, and high rates of suicidality. It's actually men who are the victims in society, and they're the victims of society because of feminism and women and et cetera, right? Mm. What sometimes goes missing is that all of these different symptoms, all these different social problems, they're part and parcel of the same dynamic. That it's not, um, it's not just that you know, men suffer because feminism, but rather that men suffer because of this relationship to something called lo and behold patriarchy that says that if you want to be a man, you have to do certain things. Mm. And if you don't do those certain things, then you're less of a man. We, we now know from a lot of research that's been done, uh, and there was a paper that came out from the American Psychological Association a couple of years ago, showing that the more men try to fit themselves into this idea of what it means to be a man, the more likely they are to have high symptoms of anxiety and depression, more likely they are to have substance use problems, more likely they are to commit suicide. So the same thing that leads men to cut off parts of themselves and then project those things onto women and LGBTQ people and see those things as bad, winds up disfiguring them, right? So the things that men do that oppress women in order to make themselves be more like men also winds up damaging them. So in this way, patriarchy obviously disfigures and affects and hurts the experience of cis women and LGBTQ people. But in order to do that, it needs to weaponize the hurt of men in order to keep the machine going. Mm. And so it's precisely in this way that a system like patriarchy can disfigure the subjectivity and humanity of both cishet men 
than basically everyone else. If we look at race, we find a very similar dynamic. Jonathan Metzl uh, published last year this book called Dying of Whiteness. And in that book, he showed that a lot of narratives that particularly the right use to stoke up uh, white resentment and white racial anxiety. For example, the idea that there's barbarians at the gates and they're coming to hurt us and our kids and our families, and therefore you need to get a gun. And by the way, if you get a gun, that's what's going to make you a man, right? Mm -hmm. There was this famous advertisement that says, you know, it shows a picture of a gun and then underneath it, a message that says, your man card has been reissued, yeah. right? I've seen that. I've seen so, that. Yeah. so that led to more gun sales. Yeah. And the more gun sales that there were in states in the South and the Midwest, higher likelihood of accidental gun deaths and higher rates of suicide. Mm. So white if you, if you want to think about what's dangerous to the health of white people, Look no further than white supremacy. White supremacy is like smoking cigarettes yeah. for white people. It's incredibly, it's incredibly dangerous. Yeah. Same thing with narratives around, um, and this was actually very striking from Jonathan's work, um, narratives around healthcare. Certain states um, didn't expand uh, healthcare under the Affordable Care Act, in part because if it expanded healthcare for everybody, then that would also include those undeserving people Black people, immigrants, Latinx people, etc. There, there's a striking quote from the book where uh, Jonathan Metzl is talking with a, a research participant. He says, well, if your state expanded these services, that would probably save your life, given that you have this chronic illness. And the participant says, well, but that means if I get it, that means the Mexicans and the welfare queens are also going to get it, and I'd rather die. There's an older analysis of that, uh, about this country and um, channeling in the days of the Cold War, the abhorrence of socialist or communist seeming practices like universal health care kept the country ideologically from moving in what had been a natural progression of expanded safety nets and social policy, social security. And so there was this in interpretation, I think it was Peter Sloterdijk, uh, yeah. an economist and, and Dutch economist, uh, was like the tragic irony that the, 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 the Cold War blocked U.S. cultural development. And I think what he missed in the analysis is this issue of race, which was really underlying. Yeah. We, we now think that um, that exact dynamic of uh, keeping, of not being progressive because it would benefit those people, which you still see. It's still yeah. going on among people who would benefit enormously if they would just acknowledge that they share the same needs as their fellow county yeah. residents or city residents. Um, and then when you look at yeah. when you look at a European culture, which they have their own problems, obviously, but they do tend to be more monocultural within their countries. This blockage never occurred. There was always a sense of solidarity. They had very strong labor movements. Um, but a lot of former communists have moved over to very conservative nationalistic parties in the collapse of the communist government because they're also being weaponized uh, now by the, the, this neoliberal economy, yeah. unequal economy. This is where the issue of um, white privilege is so important. Um, W.B. Du Bois, and, and many have commented uh, on this in Du Bois's work, 
had this idea of the wages of whiteness. Even though as workers, many white people may be deprived and exploited, whiteness provides a set of wages that is meant to, uh, Freud would say, it would, it would, it would complement, it would compensate for the deprivations that they would experience in society. In order to break out of this, that would mean that white people would need to give up the wages of whiteness, or at the very least, see the wages of whiteness as toxic and so destructive that they would actually be healthier and safer by joining with people of color in trying to create change. And the problem is that privilege, you know, people have talked about the way that privilege functions like a drug. Mm -hmm. uh, Marx. Yeah. I, I suddenly had this amazing thought that I've been thinking about for a little while about how, you know, the fundamental truths that self-actualization crowds um, sometimes have laced in their talk is that the outer world is mirroring or uh, manifestation of the inner world, right? So mm -hmm. one way to interpret that is say, I'm rich because I'm a really good person. I've got great karma. Yeah. I've got yeah. this discipline of mind. I've got this amazing fortunate rebirth or whatever it is, whatever justification that's really entwined with self-actualization talk. And the idea that Jesus, you know, out of all people and, you know, Lebanese conservative, Uber, you know, evangelical people are the one touting that line. But ironically, Jesus is the one who said we must give up the outward riches that a rich man can't yeah. find his way into the kingdom of heaven any more than a camel can go through a needle of an eye, uh, eye of a needle. But the point is, that's for me is the real realization that people in positions of um, wealth have to realize they have to find Jesus, you know, and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> which is ironic. You, know? you need to Jesus. Yeah, yeah I mean. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that is that is that is fucking fire right yeah. there. Uh, I mean, it, it's funny. It's a it's a weird place where Freud and Jesus coincide. Yeah. Um, where you know Jesus was all about you know the kingdom of earth, the kingdom of heaven is among you. Yeah. Um, I come to preach good news to the poor and yeah. freedom to the oppressed. It's right there in the the book of Luke. Yeah. And then you have Freud, uh, saying near the end of the future of an illusion, you know. If we just took our energies from the other world yeah. and used them to cultivate our plot in this one, mm -hmm. then the oppressed could create a society which is no longer oppressive to anyone. Yeah. But I, one of the things I was wanting to ask you about, and this is like a totally uh, cheap shot, is this question of the opiate of the people um, and the role yeah. of psychology. I've, I've, in the last 20 years since the Iraq war basically, I kept thinking if this country weren't over-medicated, we would really be seeing social response, you know? <laughs> and, <laughs> and people have noticed that, that uh, Carolyn Forche has just written a book about the, uh, her experience as an activist uh, going back to the 80s, where in these sort of pre-psychotropic times, we were kind of the victims of our whims and emotions and we tended to act on them. More, much more so than we do now, I think, because of a lot of the process that the psychological industry and medicine have, have provided. Um, are we self-medicating ourselves in all sorts of ways into out of out of a mode of activism and into a mode of passivity and non-responsiveness? I second that question because that's a very uh, vital question for me as well. I think 
disproportionately, I, I don't know, actually you can verify this, but whether or not mental illness strikes disproportionately people of color. Um, I think I read that somewhere, but I think definitely there's a, that internalization is, is being perpetuated the psychopharm industry and whether or not that's any truth to that, yeah. No. So uh, to the first question, yes. And uh, I guess we're done, great show guys. <laughs> <laughs> no, look, uh, I mean, the, the short the short version is yeah absolutely I mean they're they're uh, part of the function of any ideology is to worm its way into people's brains and get us to focus on other things rather than the things that are actually happening and there are a lot of different ways that that happens to both you know it's funny you bring up uh, the opiate of the masses thing because that that's actually where my mind um, was going a moment ago with um, with Marx. I was rereading for um, th this class I teach my students on critical theory and clinical practice. And uh, I was kind of rereading, -re but also reappraising what it is that Marx meant by the opiate of the masses. I if I could just re read a little Marx to you right quick. I just want to go through that passage. <laughs> this, is, this is what Marx literally... You're going to break the internet reading Marx. <laughs> so, I mean, this is literally what he says in a contribution to the critique of Hegel's phenomenal philosophy of right. He says that religious suffering is at one at the same time, the expression of real suffering and a protest against real suffering. Mm. Religion is the sigh of the oppressed creature, the heart of a heartless world, the soul of soulless conditions. It is the opium of the people. Yeah. Now, if you know a little bit about Marx and his life, when he was writing Capital, he would sit by his desk for hours on end till he developed canker sores. And in order to basically medicate himself so he could sit and continue writing, he would take opiates. He would take opiates to push through the pain and continue working. Um, and that to me suggests kind of a double-sided meaning here that religion and psychology and all these different things, they, they don't just numb our pain. They also potentially help us to push through the pain in order to create something new, mm. that there's a sign of protest. And you can kind of see that with religion and liberation theology and, um, you know, movements in the United States of Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. So there's something very, I think, generative about religion and culture and all these other things that aren't necessarily just one-sidedly oppressive. Um, to, to go to your question, BJ, about mental health and people of color, um, it's not that there is a greater prevalence of mental illness among people of color. The prevalence is more or less the same, okay. um, barring you know, certain differences when you look at race and class. But the bigger issue for people of color is persistence. Persistence has to do not just with whether you have a mental illness, but for how long do you suffer under that mental illness? For how long does that exert damage on your ability to work, to study, to perform in society? And there we find that the persistence over time for people of color is much longer many different reasons. Um, white people, particularly middle upper class white people, are more likely to have resources to get referred to treatment. Whereas for the same conditions, people of color are more often referred to um, the criminal justice system. 
if we look at certain conditions, white people are much more likely to find themselves in a psychiatric emergency room, whereas people of color are more likely to find themselves at the precinct. Mm. And that's a measurable difference in how we treat mental illness um, across race. Um, it's often said that prisons are the largest psychiatric units in our country because there's a lot of investment in psychiatric treatment within many different prison systems. But then when people exit the prison system to then reintegrate into the community, suddenly all those services stop. Right. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of different interlocking systems that not only proliferate um, mental illness among communities of color, but it also prevent access to the care that people need. Yeah, and I wonder whether or not, because um, also what I heard in Bruce's question, the tension was with whether or not going back to work and you know maintaining a job is like feeding into this system that we're not yeah. on the streets, you know, changing things. But what does it mean to change things? I don't know. Because maybe going to work is changing things. Maybe your presence at work is transforming the system. But are we? Are we internalizing the man and the system that is that put us into this mental health facility or whatever it is, these mental health struggles, that this patriarchy, this whole idea gave us these uh, conditions? And then we go to work and are we serving them? Or are we serving you know, the higher good? I don't know. You know yeah. It's something to think about. It might be a might be a lingering question because I have to do a couple of quick uh, announcements before we can just do some last shots, last thoughts. But um, this is the Truth to Power show. We're kicking some hard truths right here. Uh, the Truth to Power show, Word. Radio Free Brooklyn. Um, truth Radio bombs. Brooklyn. Thank you, some truth bombs, yes. And uh, Radio Free Brooklyn is a uh, independent listener supported radio. So if you like what you're listening to, please consider donating to Radio Free Brooklyn. Um, if, you're not, if you're in front of your computer, please know that we are, have our mobile apps on iPhone and Android, so you can download those and listen to our um, uh, new programming, upcoming RFB events. You can sign up at readyforbrooklyn.org/newsletter. But if you don't want too much email, or if you want to um, keep it light, then just go to the app and download that. Uh, now, of course, the pandemic is affecting all of us. It's affecting Radio Free Brooklyn, where you're broadcasting from home. But you know, any support that you can give is so appreciated because you know we can't go on without uh, your support. So one-time donation, monthly pledge at radiofrooklyn.org/donate, or you can go to RFP Gives Give Five. RFP Give Five. You can text that. Um, that's number is four four three two one, and it only takes a moment, but you'll be able to use your digital wallet for your donation. And finally, uh, uh, shop on Amazon. Go to amazon.com/smile and register Ready for Brooklyn as your nonprofit you wish to support. Um, which, when you do a percentage of your sales will go to RFP. It'll cost you nothing. No donation is big or too small, too big or too small. And whatever you can afford to make a huge difference, we're a community nonprofit again. And uh, we want to really bring you the goods, as it were. So uh, we've been- You're going to flood my email with promotions now, man? Is that what's happening? Yeah, so I'll tell you, I'll give you a chance now to give you a website or things, how they can follow up with you and stuff like that. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, that yeah. Sure. Um, I, yeah. I thought the announcement was a low key way of letting me know I'm going to get all the Bed Bath and Beyond promotions uh -huh. 20% off. Yeah. Um, oh, that's right. Yeah. So <laughs> the goods. <laughs> that's funny. So people, um, yeah. So people can find me at my uh, website, 
Dr. G, that's D-R-G, psychotherapy.com. You're going to also find information about the book and a discount code for the book, which they can use at the publisher's website to get 30% off. That's my shameless capitalist promotion right there. Um, I'm also on Twitter, but I barely touch the account. So don't bother looking for me on Twitter because I'm not there. Um, probably Probably the website's the best bet. Yeah, yeah. So the book again is a people's history of psychoanalysis. Um, I guess uh, I mean it's a little. I'm glad you're giving discount code because it's a little, a little heftier price because it's an academic book. But hopefully they yeah. can find it in some libraries if people are interested. It's a very good read. I read lots of it, and I think it's readable and it's very good. So I hope people will check it out and and learn a lot about um, the history of psychoanalysis and uh, how it relates to social justice. So, Bruce, you have any final thoughts? I, I just, this has been so great to talk to you, Daniel. I just, you are at the nexus of so many critical issues in our country and, and in our world. And uh, congratulations on your book. And Thank you. Um, maybe just if there are anything we didn't ask or any final thoughts you have about um, how, our, how our individual focus can become a broader social focus, maybe. You know, I think I'm going to fuse that with Vijay's um, final comments about, you know, what does it mean to go back to work in this context that we're in? I think if there's one thing that we learned is that if we all stay home for like a week, this whole fucking thing falls apart. Um, And I think we've also learned that, especially among people of color, if they stay home, this whole fucking thing falls apart. There's no there's no Amazon delivery no Instacart, none of that bullshit if everyone decides to stay home and cripple this system. So I think there's something in that that we can stand to learn from, that our work, our lives, our dignity has power. Maybe not as individuals, but as communities and as people, when we can set our heart to it, we can exert leverage and a pressure upon this world that could hopefully help us create a new and more just one for everyone. Thank you. And, Thank uh, you. Beautiful. Yeah, beautiful. And I really loved how you had, I want to bring up that canary in the mind, mind but unfortunately we couldn't go into it. Sadly, I, I didn't bring it up earlier on, but you said how when we go to the therapist, we're like canary in the mind, the kind of sounding yes. the alarm. And I think that's something that's very important to remember. I think in the context of what you're saying, that image does make sense. So I hope the listeners will appreciate the idea that going to the therapist, telling their problems, you know, working out their problems, working their self-care is like a canary in a mine, which sounds the alarm of toxic, you know, energy that's coming into their life. So I think that that's image to speak for itself. Thank you. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Thanks so much. This is the Truth to Power Show on Radio Free Brooklyn. Thank you. And you'll be listening to the next show on uh, Radio Free Brooklyn. Please tune in for that. Thank you.